It's now time to take out our Bibles together to look at God's word with one another. And if you will, today I ask that you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. Uh, For about the last six months, we have been going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And we are around about halfway through it at this point. We thought it would be appropriate and perhaps uh, good for all of us to take a short break from the book of Mark before we return to it. And so for the next couple weeks, perhaps few weeks, we will be going elsewhere in God's word and then Lord willing, we'll return to Mark and finish it out here in a little while. So today, Matthew 25, and then later in the sermon, I'll ask you to be turning with me to Revelation 14. Matthew 25 and then Revelation 14. You are going to die someday. You're going to die. When's the last time you faced up to it and thought about it and asked yourself if you were ready to die? Life does not end after death. Life continues on. And so not only will you die, you will spend eternity In one of two places. And the place you spend it in depends on your life here and now before that death. The question before us today is the one that Peter asks in 1 Peter 4.17. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Today I want to spend some time with you doing the difficult but essential work of meditating on the reality of of hell. The difficult but essential work. It is difficult because this is not something that we typically want to think about. It is not pleasant. In fact, that is a giant understatement. It's difficult, but it is essential that we do this. We must think about it. We must face up to the reality of what awaits us if we do not obey the gospel, if we do not hold fast to our faith in Christ, we must heed this all-important warning. And we must think about it, not only for ourselves, but to stir our hearts, to do all we can to save others from this eternal punishment. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Satan wants you to put this out of your mind. He wants you to avoid thinking of it. Out of sight, out of mind. That's exactly what he wants. He has everything to lose if you face up to the reality of hell. He has everything to lose. The reason that we don't want to think about hell is not only because it's unpleasant. It's because Satan doesn't want you to. 
He's doing everything he can to just make you forget all about it or to convince you that it doesn't exist. Because if you begin to think about it, then you may actually do something about it. Today, I want to ask three questions about hell. I actually borrowed this outline from a sermon by one of my seminary professors and mentors. And this sermon is due in large part to his work, and I didn't think I could improve upon it. And so this outline is from his sermon, actually. Three questions. We're going to ask how, and then how long, and then how come. What I mean by that is, number one, we're going to ask how. How are the lost punished in hell? Number two, how long will the lost be punished in hell? And number three, how come? How come there is even such a place as hell? How come it exists? And so we'll take those in turn. Number one, how? How will the lost be punished in hell? It has become increasingly popular in religious circles to deny the existence of hell or anything like it. To deny it. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe there is such a place as hell. Seventh-day Adventists reject the idea of hell as being incompatible with God's character. Of course, there are universalist groups out there that believe that everyone will be saved no matter what. When I was in college, there was a, a very popular preacher and author rising to popularity so quickly. His, his star rose faster than almost anyone I've ever seen. His name was Rob Bell. Rob Bell started a church up in Michigan. And the, the, the story was, you've heard this probably a number of times, he started the church in his living room with just a few people. And then after just a few months, it was thousands. And we loved it because those first few months, he was preaching on the book of Leviticus. And people still were coming and flocking to hear the word. We, we ate that up. And so he, he put out books. We'd listen to his sermons. We, we even used some of his videos to teach young people. There was even one time where he came to speak in person at the University of Kentucky, and we saw him there. Well, a few years later, Rob Bell came out with a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he argued that there is no way that God would ever sentence anyone to an eternity of torment in hell. Because he's a God of love. His love will win out. His love will win. And that book was the first step, at least publicly, in this man, Rob Bell, walking completely away from anything that resembles Christianity. You can follow him and, and see what I mean today. Recent studies show that an increasing amount of younger Christians, Christians, believe it is wrong for us to seek to evangelize those who do not share our beliefs. It's wrong for us to share the gospel. It's wrong for us to try to get people to believe in Jesus. Why? Well, they might give you all kinds of reasons, but the underlying cause is a soft or non-existent view of hell. The peril is not as serious as the Bible would make you think. But you cannot give an honest reading of the Bible and come away denying the existence of hell. What will it be like? That's our first question today. What will it be like? The New Testament has a number 
of vivid descriptions of what hell will be like for the lost. I want to give you just a few of them. The first and the most frequent description in our Bibles of hell is that it is a place of fire. A place of fire. Matthew 3 tells us it is unquenchable fire. If you look at our text today in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that shows us it's not just the devil and his angels that will be punished in this eternal fire. It is also those whom Jesus here calls cursed, those who have not obeyed the gospel. Mark 9 says the fire there is not quenched. And in Revelation chapter 20, hell is described as the lake of fire. Any whose names were not written in the book of life were sentenced to the lake of fire. They were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, Revelation 20. A place of fire and flames. Now, the question that some ask at this point is, is that fire literal? Or is that symbolic of something else? Perhaps Jesus and the other authors are using language that we can comprehend to describe something we can't comprehend. Is this fire literal or is it symbolic of something else? And my answer to that is, it does not matter. It does not matter because if it's literal, it is something horrific to be avoided at all costs. And if it is symbolic of something else, that something else must be horrific and is to be avoided at all costs. It is a place of fire, never-ending fire. The point is, it's something that's going to be painful and tormenting to everyone who is there. This is a warning by Jesus and by God himself. Do everything you can to avoid going to this place. Scripture also tells us that this is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses this description six times in the book of Matthew alone. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. For instance, Matthew 13, 42. Jesus says, throw them into the fiery furnace in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is this trying to communicate here, this weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, first, we are meant to see that this is a place of suffering, and not just suffering, but intense suffering. Intense suffering to the point that you are weeping and gnashing your teeth, gnashing your teeth. But I believe it's also talking about not just intense suffering, but the fact that this suffering will be of more than one kind. This suffering will be of more than one kind. It is not physical only. It is physical, and it's more than physical. Think about weeping. We weep sometimes because of physical pain. We also weep because of inner pain, inner turmoil, inner suffering, emotional, spiritual suffering. Weeping. And think about gnashing of teeth. You might gnash your teeth because of a physical suffering that will not go away, right? Gnash your teeth because the suffering is so intense. Actually, Mark 9 tells us of a young man who is demon-possessed, and that demon causes him to have what we think is seizures, and he grinds his teeth in agony. 
But also, people in the Bible gnashed their teeth when they were intensely disturbed and angry. Do you remember the Jewish leaders standing around Stephen as he was about to be stoned? And he looked up into heaven, and God gave him mercifully this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And Stephen said out loud, I see this. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it says the Jewish leaders began to gnash their teeth at him before they stoned him. What kind of pain would cause you to gnash or grind your teeth? What kind of pain? It would be something that that you cannot take your mind off, something that will not go away, something that consumes you. The other day, I had an itch on my foot and my shoes were on. I couldn't take them off because of where I was. You ever have this happen? You get an itch. I mean, it's, it's, it's small in the scope of what we're talking about right here. But I had an itch on my foot, and for a few moments, that was all I could think about. I could not think about anything else. And I had to figure out, how am I going to get rid of this? And it was intense, and it's just a little itch. Think about the intensity of the pain that those in hell cannot get rid of, that causes them to grind their teeth, to gnash their teeth. Think about the fact that this is not just physical, but emotional pain as well. Can you imagine having to experience both every moment and it never goes away? Not just one. One is bad enough, but both. Not just physical torment, but torment of your inner being, depression, anxiety, panic, loneliness, restlessness, all ratcheted up to the highest that they can go, and they will not stop. This is agony and suffering of which we have never experienced and of which we must do all we can to avoid. How long now? How long will the lost be punished in hell? It has also been popular throughout the history of the church for some to teach that hell is temporary, that it is merely temporary. Here we might think of the Catholic teaching of purgatory or something of that nature. However, this is not what we find in Scripture. Hell is not pictured as temporary in any way. Let's return to Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Look at verse 41 with me. Verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Some translations there say everlasting. Everlasting, eternal fire. Look down at verse 46. He describes it as eternal punishment. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now notice the contrast there in verse 46. The punishment of hell, Jesus means us to see as just as eternal, just as everlasting as the life in heaven. The life in the new heaven and new earth is eternal and everlasting. None of us would disagree about that, but so is the punishment in hell, everlasting. It never ends. This means there is no hope in hell. There's no hope in hell because there's no end to the suffering. When when we experience pain here on this earth, sometimes the only way we can get through it is by assuring ourselves this will soon be over. 
This will soon be over. Think of a trip to the emergency room, perhaps in your own past. A trip to the emergency room where you have to get this horrible shot or this painful operation. Or think about taking a child to such a trip. And we're constantly assuring them, it's going to be over soon. It's going to be over soon. You can do this. You can get through it. It's going to be over. There's hope. It's the only way sometimes that we can get through it. But not in hell. There's no hope in hell. Because there is no end. One of the most famous works of literature in history is Dante's Divine Comedy. One part of which he describes hell. It's called the Inferno, this part of, part of the, the work. And it's so memorable, the gates of hell in that work have these words written on them. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope. There is always hope for those who are still alive. But there is no hope in hell. It is the only truly hopeless place. There's a very interesting, I think, description of this in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I'll just read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says, They, those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now notice here it says not only eternal destruction, but it says that this eternity is away from the presence of the Lord away from the presence of the Lord. Now, someone might say, well, that sounds pretty good to me because I won't have to be in the presence of God. That's a misunderstanding of the implication of this. God is the source of all good, of all pleasure, of all happiness, of all joy. He is the source of those things. Some Today might argue, no, no, I I get pleasure and comfort somewhere else, not in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis once wrote that Satan has never invented a pleasure. Satan has never invented a pleasure. All he can do is take from the pleasures that God has created and twist them and pervert them and distort them into a sinful pleasure. But he's never invented one. All pleasure, all joy, everything good, all comfort comes from God. God is the source of all of those things. To be away from his presence is to go without those things for all eternity. No pleasure, no happiness, no joy, no comfort, nothing good ever again. No living human being has ever experienced being completely away from the presence of God. No living human being has ever experienced this. Scripture tells us God gives good gifts to even the unrighteous. He sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. His presence, in a sense of overseeing his creation, is for all. Every now and then in human history, we will get a picture of what it is like when God withdraws his hand from a situation, and it is utterly terrifying. We might think of lamentations in Scripture, the suffering of the people of Jerusalem, how they were starving so badly they began to eat their own children. But even then, even then, there has never been a situation on earth where someone was completely away from the presence of the Lord, 100%. But in hell, that's exactly what it will be. No more goodness, no more pleasure, no more happiness, no more comfort. That, my friends, is a frightening thought. 
Three times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to hell as outer darkness. Outer darkness. What could he mean by that? Hell is outer darkness. Well, one thing it means is this. We heard Danny read earlier from 1 John 1.5 that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. In the new heaven and the new earth, John tells us in Revelation, there is no need of sun or moon because the Lord radiates all the light we will ever need. But hell is the absence of God. Therefore, the absence of light. It's outer darkness. How can it be fire and darkness at the same time? I'm not entirely sure. Again, we might be dealing with symbolic realities here or symbolic writings. But either way, it's a dire warning. It's a dire warning that this is something to be avoided at all costs. The darkness of the outside and the darkness in here and in here. And this is not just darkness. It's outer darkness, Jesus says. And outer darkness here means outside of the presence of all goodness, outside of the presence of God. It is outside the gates or the boundaries of heaven. It is outside the safety and the security of the people of God and their dwelling place. Turn with me, if you will, now to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Here we read what I believe is the most, excuse me, drop my water here. Here we, we read what I believe is the most frightening, the most frightening description of hell in the entire Bible. Revelation 14, we're going to begin in just a moment in verse 9. Revelation 14, verse 9. Now this one's interesting because of what we just read. This one actually says that they will be suffering in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And I'm not entirely sure how to go about combining that with what we just read about hell being outside of the presence of God. But that's not the main point I want, want you to see here in this description. Specifically, I'm going to focus on verse 11, but let's read verses 9 through 11. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It says they have no rest, day or night, no relief, no hope. Hell is eternal. And it is never ending. Finally, how come? Why does there even exist a place like hell? Why did God create it? Why does he send people there? It is not surprising that some people seek to deny the existence of hell. And others try to claim it as temporary rather than eternal. This is not surprising. 
Because the very idea of an eternal hell, eternal torment with no hope of escape ever, that idea is absolutely horrible when you really spend time thinking about it. It's horrible. And so naturally then, there are those who begin to say to themselves, there is just no way that God could ever do that. I cannot believe a God of love would ever sentence anyone to something like that. I refuse to accept this. And then with that as their starting point, they go searching for any sliver of justification for that belief that they can find. Now understand, this belief That hell does not exist or that it is temporary. This is not an honest dealing with the truth of Scripture. People come to it backwards. They come to it backwards. What I mean by that is this. It begins with someone's own idea that they just cannot accept that God would ever sentence someone to eternal torment. It begins there. I cannot accept this. I cannot believe this. And then they go searching for confirmation for that predetermined belief. They come to it backwards. But I understand. I understand because it is truly an awful thought. However, what we want to be true is irrelevant. What we want to be true or what we want desperately not to be true is irrelevant. All that matters is what is true. All that matters is what God has told us in his word. And so, why is there such a place at all? Why would God do this? After all, he is a God of love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Is he not? God is love. That's his very nature. That's who he is. God is love. How could a loving God sentence anyone to eternal torment in hell? But friends... Do not define God by one verse alone. Do not define God by 1 John 4, 8 alone, that God is love. Yes, he is love. But we also saw in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. And for our purposes here, most importantly, Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Do not define God by one verse alone. The Bible, over and over again, speaks of God as having two sides to his nature. One side is God's love, and the other side is God's holiness. God's love and God's holiness. And these exist in perfect harmony until sin comes into the picture. But when sin comes into the picture, they pull in two opposite directions. God's love manifests itself in grace in the presence of sin, but God's holiness manifests in wrath. In wrath. God's love on the one hand, his holiness on the other. Romans 11.22 shows us this dual-sided nature of God. Romans 11.22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. His kindness and his severity. You cannot have one without the other or else you don't have a full picture of who God is. This is a holy God who hates sin with a perfect hatred. A 
holy God who hates sin with a perfect hatred. Our scripture reading call to worship this morning was Nahum 1, where we heard that God is avenging and wrathful. He stores up wrath for his enemies. Scripture tells us in so many different ways, so many different places, that the Lord is righteous. He is the righteous one. Now, many times we hear a word like that, and because we've heard it so many times, we just assume we know what it means. Righteous. Of course I know what that means. I've grown up in church, maybe. Maybe you say that. I've grown up in church. I've heard that so many times. I know what righteous means. Righteous actually means that God acts always in accordance with his own nature. Righteousness. It means God acts at all times in accordance with his own nature. He never contradicts himself or his attributes, which means... He always acts in perfect justice. Perfect justice. God cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. That would be to go against his own nature. And because our sins are against the highest of all beings in the universe, against a perfectly loving God, against one of infinite majesty and glory, those sins, warrant a punishment that matches the majesty and glory of the one sinned against. A righteous God must punish all sin. He must punish all sin. Galatians 6 verse 7 tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. How do you mock God? You mock God by living as if that's not true. You mock God by living as if your sins will have no consequences. You mock God as if he will not follow through on what he said he will. That's when you mock God and God will not ultimately be mocked. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. You cannot live in sin and think you will never experience the consequences of it. You cannot defy God and get away with it. It's like mocking God. Those who live in sin and are confident that they are fine. In the end, all those who refuse to repent and turn to God will get exactly what they deserve. This is the holy justice of God. Hebrews 12 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the wonder of all wonders is this. There will be some who do not get what they deserve. There will be some who do not get what they deserve. God is indeed love. He is. And in fact, the Bible tells us That God's desire and God's wish is that no one would go to hell. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not wish that any should perish. He desires all to come to repentance. The book of Ezekiel tells us the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even though his holiness and justice require that he send people to hell, in his very heart this is not what he wants for anyone. And so, God has provided a means for you and I to escape it. And that means is Jesus. Jesus. This is the whole reason that Jesus came. Jesus came as our Savior to save us 
from the wrath of God. He came to suffer hell in our place so that we would not have to suffer it. What happened on the cross is that God punished his own son. That cup of wrath was poured out full strength on his own son. And Christ took it all. He drained the cup of God's wrath and his anger to the dregs. And since he did, now God can offer forgiveness to anyone who comes to him through faith in Christ. To anyone who repents of their sins, anyone who offers allegiance to Jesus, God gives forgiveness. He cancels your debt. He applies Jesus' punishment to your account. And so your debt has not been swept under the rug. Your debt has not been swept under the rug. It has been paid by another. And Romans 3 tells us that this is how God can both punish sins and forgive sinners. This is how God can forgive us and remain just and righteous, to remain true to his nature. He punished the sinless one, Jesus, in our place. And Jesus did it voluntarily. That is the gospel that we must obey, friends. Jesus is the way to escape hell, and he is the only way, because he is the only way that our sins can be dealt with. He is the only way our sins can be put away from us and that we can receive forgiveness. It's only through Jesus. This morning, in light of everything that we have just heard, we're going to spend a few moments in silent prayer And I ask you to to pour your heart out to God. To pour your heart out to Him. If you are in Christ this morning, to thank Him for saving you from hell. If you are not sure if you are in Christ this morning, to plead with Him for mercy. And to ask Him to help you put your faith in Jesus and repent of your sins. And then after we pray, We will come back together and we will offer an opportunity for any who might be experiencing that to come forward and to publicly claim their allegiance to Jesus and be baptized into his name and to have your sins washed away. So let's pray for a few moments and then we'll have our invitation time.